Well, this morning I have one of our pastors here who's actually going to, in a way, give the introduction to my message today. Uh, This is Pastor Jim Pitts. He is our pastor of student ministries here at the church. And and I'm the senior pastor of the church. And uh, so in the week to week of church ministry, you know, there is sort of that, uh, the, the, the grind of ministry and we have lots of things that are going on here and we're so thankful for just faithfulness in the day to day. Uh, but through that, sometimes God uh, does something special. And we had that happen uh, this week, and so I've asked Pastor Jim to relate a little bit about what happened Thursday night at uh, our student ministry. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, first, I, I want to tell you that I'm very humbled to be able to share with you the events of our Thursday night worship service. Uh, that week, this past week, everything that could go wrong to set up for that night did. So many people were kind of missing, and things weren't done, and I'm a perfectionist, and this little stuff just bothered the living daylights out of me. My message wasn't coming together. And God was about to show me that he cares more about the student ministry than I ever could. As I began the night, from the selection that Brant Molinar and Elevate put together of the songs to the the mini challenge that one of our youth workers, Lane, brought... Everything kept pointing towards the gospel and the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. When I got up there, I was going to preach from Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 34, the beginning of Jesus breaking the bread uh, and feeding the 5,000. And as I got into my first point, I had an overwhelming sense and desire to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ pure. And I felt verses just flood my mind and and begin to come out of my mouth as I began to quote scripture after scripture and I I'm I'm not exactly sure all of what I said but 40 minutes later I knew that the gospel had been preached I knew that that the gift of God had been presented through Jesus's shed blood And that the message that Jesus cared for them more than any human being could ever do so. And he wanted to have a relationship with them. And he provided a way to do that came through. I don't often give invitations. Uh, We want our teens to make professions that are lifelong lasting. Not because of music that has been put together and by man's efforts. So we rarely give invitations where they immediately respond publicly. But that night I, I felt called to do so. And... I made a very difficult and hard-pressed challenge. I asked them, with everyone still seated, if, if anyone wanted to initiate and start a relationship with Jesus Christ that they had never done so before, in front of all their peers, would they just stand up and, and go back to a room and just spend some time, maybe with some leaders, opening the Word of God and finding out how to start that relationship? Teenager after teenager got up and walked back to the room without caring who was around them or what happened. As they did so, one, one, guy, one guy got up and a couple of girls started crying. And I, I found out at the end afterwards that... These young ladies have been praying for and witnessing to this young man for over a year, not ever knowing if he would ever accept Jesus Christ as, as his Savior. And when he came out of that room, the joy that penetrated his smile, the passion he had, the love for Christ, the hugs that he gave him, he couldn't wait to exclaim the fact that he had a new relationship with Jesus Christ. That night we saw nine teenagers accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. We had four give give sins over to the Lord. We had two recommit their lives and say, I'm all in. I want to live for Christ. I had one junior young guy. Before I even got back to my office, he sent me a text and said, The sermon tonight woke me up from the fact that it truly doesn't matter what others think of me. Because I am a Christian. It only matters to me what God thinks. And now I could care less if I have to lose my so-called friends in the process of growing stronger in my walk. It doesn't bother me anymore. 
I just want to share this with you. If God is whispering in your ear, if the Holy Spirit is pounding on your heart to share the gospel, your efforts, your efforts to do that will be blessed. God wants us to share the gospel of his good news of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross so that others can come to know him. Amen. Praise God. Now, why does this make us happy? This makes us happy for a number of reasons, but one of them is that the bottom line to bottom lines is this, that every person born is an immortal soul that is going to spend eternity somewhere. And the Bible says that they are either going to spend eternity in a place of judgment and punishment uh, called hell or is going to spend eternity in a place of bliss and joy with God and with Christ uh, called heaven and the new earth and eternal life. And when you wash it all down, I mean, think of all the sermons and all of the ministries and all of the churches and all of the philosophies and all the, you know, the chatter about this, that, and the other and debates about all these different things. When you just wash it all down to the bottom line, the bottom line is we're all going to die and go to one place or the other. And the church is the steward of the message that determines that for, for human beings. And so we have this wonderful privilege to share that. And Thursday night, that was shared in a way, and God worked through that to bring about salvation and brought faith. And we thank God for what he did. And, and may we pray for those nine young people and that God would continue to do the work in the youth ministry. But what about us here today? I mean, we could all sit there and go, oh, that's very nice. Oh, that was a special time there Thursday night. Thank you very much for sharing that. Is it possible that maybe right now God could do something here? We're opening his word. We've gathered together. We've sung songs. We've prayed. Might God do something here, maybe in your heart today? We're just kind of, you know, crazy enough to believe that maybe that could happen. And we want that to happen. And we hope that God does that. So today I want to talk with you. And Jim's uh, words is a great introduction to why we should care about evangelism. And why we should endeavor with our lives to make a difference and to fulfill the Great Commission. And also to identify a few reasons why we are so ineffective oftentimes in doing that. So would you pray with me, and let's just ask that God would bless us in this time. Heavenly Father, we pray that these minutes right now would not be viewed by any of us as, uh, as a waste, as somehow a time that is unimportant, but that we would come now to your word and that we would tremble and that we would have open hearts and minds. And I pray that you would move in our hearts and transform our lives and our thinking and make us more into the kind of Christians that you would have us to be and the kind of church that you would want us to be. So use this time, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a series on 1 Corinthians and we are in chapter 9. And I would like to read uh, verses... 15 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes this, I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now, right now, you might be saying, well, what's that about? I don't quite get that. Well, see, that's why I'm here, is to try to help us understand and hopefully when we leave here, uh, we will get what uh, this passage means. 
Now, chapter 9 is a kind of personal manifesto from the Apostle Paul. We get a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle. We get to see what mattered to him, what made him tick, the things that really drove him. And we saw in verse 12, he makes this amazing statement that he would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And we spent some time talking about the kind of mindset when it comes to ministry and the gospel that says, whatever it takes, I'm like, I'm all in. I'm going to do whatever I can in whatever way that I can in order to advance the gospel in this world. Why? Because again, the bottom line is we're all here. We're going to die and we end up in two places. And so Paul had this consuming passion for ministry and for God and for the church and for people. And so he gave himself totally to it. Now, in context, he says he would endure anything. What endurance is he talking about? Well, he's talking here about rights that he has as an apostle, one of which was the right to being financially supported by the churches. And he builds this case for why he, along with the apostles, and we could even speculate other ministers of the gospel, uh, have a right to being supported by the, by the people of God. But at the end of all of that, he says, you know what, in spite of the fact that I have this right, I don't accept it. I work with my hands so that I might endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Christ. So What he basically says here is that he has a kind of reward or compensation that is not financial. There's a kind of joy, pay, that he gets that goes beyond that. In fact, he says in verse 18 that his reward is the fact that he doesn't receive any compensation. Now, how would that work in your place of employment? If like tomorrow your boss got on the intercom and said, all right, everybody, Your compensation today will be the joy of not receiving compensation. Wouldn't go so well, would it? But that's basically what he says. There is a reward, a kind of pay, if you will, that goes along with gospel ministry. And it has to do with seeing people's lives transformed by Christ. And that's something you can't put a price tag on. In fact, one commentator said this, to have mended one shattered life, to have restored one wanderer to the right way, to have healed one broken heart, to have brought one individual to Christ is not a thing whose reward can be measured in financial terms, but its joy is beyond all measurement. I don't know if you sense a little joy in Pastor Jim as he was sharing these kinds of things, right? There's a kind of fulfillment that comes in ministering to people and seeing the gospel do its effect in their life and to produce the fruit of righteousness, So Paul says, that's what I'm about. And I would rather, no one's going to take this boasting from me because that, I I want to see that happen. He goes on to talk about why he has this boast. And the first thing that he says is that uh, it's because he is a gospel by divine calling, by divine calling. We see in Galatians 1.15, he says that God set him apart from birth to this task And we talked last week about this experience that he had on the road to Damascus when Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul. He saw the risen Christ, and Christ set him aside to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul had this sense of God wanting him to do this, that he was not just doing it, he was doing it because God had called him to do it. He had a call on his life. In fact, he says, woe to me if I do not do it. And that woe there is not the internal, like I'm going to feel bad kind of woe. It's the woe of God upon him. If he doesn't do what God had called him to do. Secondly, we see here the fervor of the apostle. And this is really, I'm going to spend some time on this. I want you to look very carefully at verse 15. He writes this, I would rather, what's the next word? Okay, you're not looking at your Bibles right now, are you? Now, some of you, you're not, you're not doing what they do with the toll booth sometimes where they kind of do the fake throw. You know, they don't have any money, but they sort of fake the throw of the cash into the... You ever seen them do that? And then they drive through? You know what I'm talking about? All right. Some of you, you, you don't do this, do you? When I say, look at your Bibles, and you're like, you don't have a Bible, or you still look down. <laughs> and then I say, what's the next word? And you're all like, I don't know. He says, I would rather die. 
Now you can know what you're passionate about by what you're willing to die for. Paul says, no one's going to take this boast from me, and I would rather die than not serve Christ. The English actually smooths it out here. In the Greek, it literally is this. I would rather die than... And that's how it ends. It's just like hanging there. It's like the apostle, is, as he's thinking about this, he's filled with emotion and doesn't even finish the sentence. That's how much he cared about ministry. Preaching the gospel and ministering the gospel for the apostle was not just a job. He wasn't just doing it to put bread on the table. He wasn't just going through the motions of being a spiritual guy and doing what apostles do. The apostle Paul was doing it because God had called him to it. And there was this sense of fervor and zeal and earnestness that marked his ministry. He wasn't in it for a title. Call me an apostle, please. He wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't in it for pats on the back. He wasn't in it for some kind of prestige. He was in it for God, the gospel, and people. That's what he cared about. And that produced in him this kind of zeal and energy for God. Kind of emotion, if you would. If you would. Now, I need to say this. Apparently I do because I'm going to. What do churches need? Well, I think churches need, we need, uh, you know, we need better facilities. We need, we need new carpet. It'd be nice if we had nurseries that smelled fresh. Uh, we need, you know, come up with whatever you think that we need. You know what, you know what churches need? Churches need leaders with a heart that we see here. Churches need people in the congregation who have this kind of ardor, zeal for God that translates into a kind of mindset that is even maybe able to say, you know what, take away ministry from me, I'd rather be dead. What I care about is God and the gospel and people. That's what churches need. That's what pulpit, I was just say pulpits especially. Churches need people in pulpits that aren't doing it because it's a job. And they're not just doing it because they think it's a nice thing to do. They are doing it because there's a call on their life. And they want to preach the gospel and see lives changed. That's what churches need. And now before you get all like, that's right, we need those people in the pulpit. It's in the pews as well, right? Because I can up here and flap my gums all that I want. And if this doesn't translate into a kind of heart for God in the church, then this is a colossal waste of time. I'm just up here speaking into the air. The clanging gong. No, I wrote this better and I want to say what I wrote actually. Okay, so let me say it here. What churches need today is men and women leading and serving like Paul, not ecclesiastical shopkeepers, not church politicians, not pastoral CEOs, not ministry professionals, but men and women with a sense of divine calling who are not caught up with what ministry can do for them, but what the gospel can do for people. That's what we need. I remember some years ago, I was uh, visiting a church. I was new in ministry and um, we went, went to this church and they were having communion, okay, which is this very special time, holy time for a church. We were having communion. And so the pastor got up to give the little pre-communion homily. And he gets up and he kind of just starts talking. Just talking. And I could tell, A, he wasn't really into it. B, I don't think he'd really prepared very much for it. And see, he wasn't saying anything worthy of remembering. It was just kind of blah, 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 blah. There was no power to it. There was no energy at all in it. And I sat there, and, and maybe this was judgmental on my part, but I just thought in my heart, I never want to do that. I never want to be so familiar with the cup and the bread. I never want to be so familiar with the word of God, or so familiar with holding the hand of the sick at the hospital, or hugging the grieving person, or whatever else is involved in ministry, where it just becomes a routine, where this is just something that we do, where there isn't a sense of 
passion about it. That's what I, I don't want to do that. Now, have I over the years? I'm sure that I have at some time. But when ministry becomes familiar, then the church is dead. Shut the doors, close out the lights. There's no point in getting together. And that really leads to, I only have two things to say today. There's two points to this message. And this really is kind of a two of maybe four or five points that he makes here in this passage. But here's what I want to say to you. You might be here today and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, it's very nice for the Apostle Paul. But, you know, I haven't really had a vision of Jesus where he told me to go be an apostle to the Gentiles. It hasn't happened to me. I don't think I'm called to be in ministry. I'm not really preaching or that kind of thing. So I don't really get why Paul's little things here relate to me at all. And that's what I want you to realize is it relates entirely to you. Any Christian here today and any church that wants to be used of God has certain character qualities. And it doesn't matter the denominational label. It doesn't matter some of the little theological nuances. There are certain things that have to be there if God's going to use a person or a church. And here's the first one, and we see it here in this passage. It's passion. It's passion. The word means a powerful or, powerful or compelling emotion, an overwhelming zeal or fervor. You can know what you, are willing, what you are passionate about by what you are willing to die for. And that's what Paul says, I would rather die than blank. He cared. Now realize in this that Paul was a normal human being. Don't, we don't want to, there's always a danger to put these guys so high that we think that they lived on a plane that was unachievable for us or something. I am sure that he woke up some days and he just was, you know, just blah, like the rest of us are. And I doubt every day he was, you know, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I don't think he was singing that song because uh, he was human just like us. We have frailties and we have weaknesses and we all have moments when we're not all that we want to be. But there was in his life a kind of steady energy for God and the gospel that God used to spread the gospel through him. And if he did not have that energy, God would not have used him in that way. His passion was a part of how and why God used him the way that he did. And this, of course, is in sharp contrast to the kind of thing that you see in nominal, lukewarm kind of Christianity where we're all very nice people and we're all having a very nice time doing the nice little social thing and getting along and nobody is too excited about it. And nobody wants to act like they're, they really care about this kind of thing because if we think too, if we, if we act like we care too much, then somebody's gonna look down on us. May God never, may this never be a church where we look down on people that are too passionate for God. Okay? And that's where Paul just steps in and says, you know what? I'd rather die. He says this in, in Romans 9, a remarkable statement. I wish that I myself were accursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You know, what that's, you know what that means? You see that word accursed there? He basically is saying this. I would rather myself go to hell if my going to hell would lead to the salvation of my brothers and sisters. Now you can know that you're passionate for something if you're willing to go to hell for it. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? And that's the thing. I mean, he just... Paul had a passion. He had a passion. And I, I have to believe that when you met the Apostle Paul, you can say what you want about him, and there's speculation that he was short and not attractive and not a good speaker and all the rest. But one thing he had was heart. He had heart for God. And it kind of, I'm sure it shocked people around him. But it's part of the reason that God used him the way that he did. And again, we look at we look at examples like this and it's in such contrast to what is so common in in American Christianity where there is all of these people who grew up going to church and church is just sort of a thing that you do. It's a nice thing on a Sunday to go to church and to get gussied up and to go have a nice time and see your friends and all the rest. But when it really comes down to it, when it comes to the gospel, there is not passion. And I'm, I'm not talking here about emotionalism. Where we get on the piano, la, 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 we get all excited like this. That's You flame out. By 3 o'clock, it's gone. 
We're talking about the slow, steady burn for God. Paul had it. Paul had it. I wonder, what can we say? What can we say about somebody who claims to understand the gospel, who claims to believe and and to have received the grace of God to them as sinners, to have understood the desperation of their situation before God, who understands the love of God shed abroad through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who has received this not by earning it, but entirely a gift by faith, who has, has come to understand that God has done this as an expression of his love to them, and who says that they have received this grace from God. What can we say about somebody who claims these things, and yet in their life there is no passion about it? What can you say? How about a little passion, folks? How about a little emotion? How about actually acting like we're excited about it? And we think it's a really great thing what God has done for us in Christ. How about some energy? What are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? Are we afraid that somebody might look at us and think that we actually believe what we're saying we believe? So let me ask you, when was the last time that you shed a tear, spiritual tear for somebody? When was the last time that you sort of looked across the street or you looked to the cubicle next to you or you looked at the student in the locker next to you or some other place and looked at them in a kind of way that Paul did with an eye for the gospel and the love of God and a desire to see them reached? And again, I'm not talking about a contrived thing. That's the thing. You can preach messages like this and people get all fired up. And then they fire down. It's the steady, week in, week out, passion for God. That's what we're shooting for. It's it's necessary. I heard Paul Harvey say he never saw a monument erected in the memory of a pessimist. I like that. And you know what else we can say? You will never see a person or church used by God without enthusiasm and passion. It just doesn't work that way. The heart of the Great Commission is passion for God. And here's the thing. You know what I'm talking about. Because when you come across somebody that has a passion for God, you know it, don't you? In fact, I'd like you to think right now, in your life, who is the most passionate Christian that you have personally come to know? So right now, don't be saying, well, Billy Graham, or, you know, I'm talking not somebody from a distance, but somebody that you've had a relationship with. Who would that person be? And I'm going to ask you to say the, the name out loud. Ready? Are you ready? Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Okay, so that's nice. We can just say that in mass. Uh, now think about that person a moment. What is it or what was it about that person that here now, for some of you probably years later, when I ask who's the most passionate Christian that you've ever known, brings them to your mind? What was it about them? I would have to suggest to you that there was some kind of energy, wasn't there? Anybody pick some, somebody that's just like, Bleh. probably not. Those people don't tend to stand out very much, okay? They had some kind of an energy. There was something in them that just, poof, poof, to them. It's much like I heard about, uh, I read about George Whitfield, one of my heroes, uh, famous evangelist, rocked colonial America. For, uh, for the Lord. And Benjamin Franklin loved to hear uh, George Whitfield preach. So one day George Whitfield was preaching and Ben Franklin's he's, he's on his way to go hear, he's on his way to go hear uh, George Whitfield preach. And somebody sees him and stops him and says, hey, F- Franklin, why are you going? Because he was an agnostic, okay? Why are you going to hear Whitfield preach? You don't believe that stuff. And Franklin said, I don't, but he does. I don't, but he does. My dear friends, what the world needs is not richer Christians or more famous Christians, or I would even suggest necessarily more Christians. 
What the world needs is real Christians with passion for God. The kind of Christians who could legitimately say, I'd rather die than not serve the Lord. These are the people that make a difference. Think of it in your life. These are the people that make a difference in, in families. These are the people that make a, an impact on their spouse. These are the kind of people that have a kind of influence on their neighborhood. And they, have, they make a difference in the school system. And there's a, there's a kind of force that they have in their place of employment. They have energy. They have passion. And that comes out in a way that people think to themselves, I don't believe it, but he does. That's the way that it works. You know it when you see it. Let me tell you a few people in my life that I would point to. I remember when I was in college, I would, uh, some weekends I would go to Grace Community Church in Hudsonville, Michigan, and I would listen to a 26-year-old pastor named Dan Cummings. And uh, I would go and I'd sit there and Dan would begin to preach. And as he began to preach, and as he began to think about God, and as he began to think about people, tears would begin streaming down his face. And I was 19 years old or whatever, but you know what? I'd sit there, and I would see that, and it's just, like, when that happened, my heart would go inside. It had an impact on me. And I'm thankful for Dan Cummings. He died in his 40s this year of cancer. I think about Abraham Thomas in that category for me. Abraham Thomas is a, an Indian man that we've partnered with who is just like making great, a great difference in southern India for the Lord. You get around that guy, he's just, he's just got, an, he's got an energy. There's just, there's just, there's an energy about him. He's got passion for God. I think about my old pastor, Kimber Kaufman at College Park Church. And when I served as an associate there, there I'd be sitting there near the front, in the front, where all good associate pastors should be sitting. And uh, I would sit in the front, and, and, and he would get up, and, and he, as he began to preach, and as he began to talk about the gospel, it was like the, the liquid portals of his face all sort of like opened up. So here come the tears and, you know, snots coming out of his nose everywhere. And he's preaching the, he's preaching the gospel going, and I'm here to tell you God loves you. And you know what? As he did that, the room was silent. Because everybody's heart's going. He had passion. People flocked the church. I may not believe it, but that guy does. The world is dying, my friends, for something to believe in. We have the one thing to believe in. And when we make these claims to what we believe in, the gospel is so majestic and so magnificent. It is so massive that when we say to the world, God loves you, God has loved us in our desperate situation, in our sin, he sent his son to rescue us. And this was an act of his love towards us. And Jesus died on the cross, bearing our guilt and our shame. He died in our place. He was resurrected on the third day by the power of God. And you know what? He's alive right now at the right hand of God. And someday he's coming back. And he's going to, to, uh, to save fully all that are his. And give to us eternal life in a place of eternal bliss. A place of great beauty and glory. And there we shall be with him forever. This is what we say to the world. And when we say this, it's so beautiful. It's so massive. When we say that, but then we don't have any passion for it, the world looks at it and says, it must not be true. Because what you are saying is so big, your lack of passion for it tells me there's nothing to it after all. So how about a little passion? How about acting appropriate to the glory of the gospel that we profess, which can only, when rightly understood, produce Joy and gladness 
and energy, passion, zeal, fervor for God. And my dear friends, that is why it's not contrived. It's not contrived. It's humble and real. It flows from a gospel that humbles us. So again, may I ask you, would you describe yourself as a passionate Christian? Serving passionately in a passionate church who passionately wants to reach people with the gospel. And if not, what might God call you to change in your thinking, priorities, values? Perhaps to offer a prayer, God, make me that kind of passionate Christian. May God do that. So that's the first thing that I want to say to you today. The first quality of a person that God uses is passion for the gospel. The second thing we find beginning in verse 19. Here's what Paul writes. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Look ahead to verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Now this is one of the most important passages in the New Testament dealing with the contextualization of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that the message of the gospel doesn't change, never will. It is always the same. But the church is ministering this gospel in all kinds of different cultures. And that requires a certain flexibility with how we do ministry to fit the particular culture that we're ministering in. So, for example, um, you met Mrs. Conta from uh, Sierra Leone, who I think is in this service. And so ministry in West Africa is a little bit different than ministry in Crown Point, Indiana. I have been there, and I can tell you that that is the case. Same message, different kind of ministry. And Paul uh, had to deal with this. So we read his story, and like in Acts 13, he's in a Jewish synagogue, and he's presenting the gospel. So what does he do? He quotes the Jewish Old Testament. Then he goes to Athens in Acts 17, and he's before the Greek philosophers, and does he quote the Old Testament? No. He quotes their poets, and he says, and oh, by the way, I saw an altar on the way in here that said to the unknown God, I want to tell you about him. And then he is, uh, he's in Jerusalem, and he, the crowd's trying to kill him. Do you talk to a, a crowd of people that are trying to kill you a little bit differently than you talk to your mom? Yes. And so he does that. And then, then he's on a ship uh, and he's ch- chained to a Roman centurion. And you can only imagine what he was saying to the Roman centurion on the entire trip. And then he's on Malta talking to islanders. And then he's in Rome talking to the great power of the day. And so Paul was all the time in these different contexts. And what he says in this passage is that he has become all things to all men so that he might save some. This is our calling as well as the church because we live here in one of the most diverse communities in all of the United States. We're here in Northwest Indiana. We have all kinds of religious cultures, ethnic cultures, social cultures, educational uh, levels. You can think about, for example, for a church like ours wanting to reach Northwest Indiana, we look down south and we see Demont, Indiana. How do we reach Dutch people in Demont, Indiana? And Dutch people need the Lord. Trust me, I know. I have that blood in me. So how do we do that? Is that maybe a little bit differently than than as we look north and think about how can we have an impact for the gospel in Gary, in the African-American community predominantly in Gary? And to maybe think a little bit east to Hammond and East Chicago and think of the Hispanic community there, to think about sort of the melting pot of these communities sort of in between. And Leroy, of course, Indiana as well. How do we reach Leroy? So... As we think about these things, what, what is required? We must contextualize the gospel. And Paul here lays out a paradigm for how to do it. And we're only talking about one part of this uh, in our remaining time. Uh, we'll get to others later. But I want you to see it in verse 19. Passion is the first character quality. Servanthood is the second. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
I have made myself a servant to them that I might win them. Now realize who is saying this. The Apostle Paul, let me tell you a little bit about him, was born a Roman citizen. Now to be a Roman citizen was to have distinction in the day. He didn't buy it. He was born into it. So he, was, he came from a family of some note, had a Roman citizenship. He was trained in the best schools of the day. So as we talk about Paul, we're talking about a highly educated, probably from a wealthy family, a man who in religious circles had achieved great things. This is a man of some distinction. This is the last guy that you would expect to say, you know what? I have made myself a doulos in the Greek, slave. I have made myself a slave. Now let's talk about slaves. To be a slave was to have no distinction, to have no privilege, to have no right at all. So somebody who has great privilege willingly makes themselves somebody who has no privilege. And why does he do it? He says, so that I might win more of them. Win to what? Win to the gospel. Win to salvation, win to Christ. So we see here now a second quality. He was willing to set aside his own agenda, his own rights, in order to advance the gospel. And it would uh, seem to me that this is probably another reason that the church is so anemic and ineffective in our evangelism is that how many of us want to sort of willingly become a doulos? Slavery, I love that. Where, where do I sign up for that? What if we had that in the back? Slavery sign up is at the information desk. Please visit as you leave. You all go out these doors probably here. I don't want to be a slave. I'm an American. I'm free. I don't slave. But that's what he says. To be a slave. I'd like for you to think of the person that God used in your life, if you're a Christian, that God used in your life to bring you to faith in Christ, predominantly. Maybe that's hard to identify one person, but the main person that God used. I'm going to ask you to say their name out loud, too, in a second, okay? So you got that name in your mind? Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Okay. Now, think about that person and what they did in order for this to be a reality in your life. Did they not in some way serve you think about it maybe time they gave you time they gave you attention they gave you love in some way they were serving you how many people were led to christ by somebody who hated you anybody maybe somebody that abused you hurt you probably not and the reason for that is an important point that gospel ministry, the servanthood of gospel ministry, is a picture of the gospel itself. To evangelize, to share the gospel, requires me to set aside my time, my attention, in order to serve the other person. Which is exactly what Christ did to save us. He was the Son of God. He became the Son of Man. He was the second person of the Trinity. He was incarnated in weakness. And why did he do it? He did it to reach us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And then Philippians 2, and I read this all the time, but it's such a great passage and it applies all the time. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The gospel is that God, Christ, became our servant. And gospel ministry always requires servanthood. Now, why do you suppose servanthood is so effective in spreading the gospel? Think about that a moment. And then let me tell you about a few people, and I think you'll get it. Let me tell you about a guy in our church. Many of you know Merle McCluskey. Merle McCluskey is a senior citizen. For 30 years, he has served as the chaplain of the Lake County Jail. 
30 years. Merle receives no compensation for this. He just does it. Leads services, organizes services. They call him Father Mac there, which is kind of funny to think about. Merle could call himself a pastor. Oh, really? Tell me about your congregation. Well, we have a lot of sinners. (laughs) My little parish there, the Lake County Jail. But that's what he does. So here comes Merle McCluskey walking into the jail. What do those inmates know about this fellow that's coming to see them? No compensation. It's not a job to him. Why is he there? Because he cares about them. And he's there to serve them. And these guys listen to him because of that. Now think about that. I doubt he's getting a lot of thank you notes and flowers from them. uh, As you know, sort of appreciate you coming there, Father Mac. And here's a gift card. I don't think that's happening. But he's there serving them. I think of Mel Kemp in our church who... Uh, is a retiree and week in and week out delivers meals on, with Meals on Wheels to people throughout the congregation, or not the congregation, well, maybe some of you, I don't know. Uh, I actually wouldn't mind signing up for that myself, but uh, it's, it's shut-ins and infirm people, and there, there he comes, and he's not paid for it, but, but here he comes, serving them. I want to tell you about some, a special person in my life her name is Billy Hunley, and I've told you about Billy Hunley before, although I don't know that I've actually said her name before, but uh, Billy Hunley is the mother of one of my best friends growing up, whose name's Matt Hunley. Matt actually pastors a church in Albert Lee, Minnesota, but this is a picture of Billy in, the, in, her, in, her, in her blue dress there, and this is her husband, Richard. Billy and Richard... Uh, Married for a long, long time. Billy is a Christian. Richard is not. I should say was, but that would give away my story. <laughs> Let me tell you about this family. I remember uh, being in the home many times. I was afraid of Mr. Hunley. He was not sort of the most warm kind of person visiting the house. Um, a little bit on the gruff side, really did not care about Christianity at all. But Billy was a Christian. And year after year, she loved Richard. And now, realize that Billy would hate that I'm talking like this. As long as I give glory to God, she'll be okay with it. But... This is not sort of like flashy couple or anything. They live in Iowa and just faithful kind of woman serving faithfully, taking your boys to church week in and week out. Dad's not there, not a part of it at all. Well, let me tell you what happened. After decades of being married and decades of Richard not really caring about Christianity, his health began to fail. And as that happened, Richard began to reconsider life and death and All these years, this woman, my wife, who has served me and been consistent in her walk and her love. And so Richard kind of started becoming a little bit open to the thought. And so Billy began to read scripture to him in the home and occasionally would pray with him. And by this time, he's wearing the little oxygen thing and his health was failing. And one day, just a couple years ago, Billy had read scripture with him, and she walked away, and in her heart, she just thought, you know what, I should ask him one more time. And so she turned around and went back into the family room, wherever he was, and said, Richard, would you like to give your life to Jesus Christ? Okay, we're talking decades of new. He said, I think I would. And talk about joy, I mean... He prayed to receive Christ with her, was baptized in the little country church in Finchford, Iowa. And this last Monday, their family gathered in that very church to bury him. Now, 
If there's ever been a servant in this world, I'm here to tell you, Billy Hunley is that servant. And I just want to tell you, there is something so compelling about somebody who faithfully serves. And it's not flashy. We all want the sort of magic evangelism bullet, like let's do this event and get everybody saved and all of that. It's not flashily. It, it, it's, it's steady. And over time, people realize there is a reality to the faith that we are claiming. And servanthood argues for the reality of a risen Savior. And that's the beauty of this. You take somebody who has passion and energy for God, and you put that together with a heart that wants to serve people, and there's somebody that God will use. You take a church filled with people that have energy for God and who want to serve the community and one another, there is a church that God will use. And you see, my friends, this is the bottom line. Because when you wash it all out, when you get to all of the bottom lines of all the bottom lines is every person is an immortal soul that's going to spend eternity somewhere. And God has called us as stewards of the gospel to express it to the community in words and deeds and to argue compellingly for the reality of a risen Savior. And I wonder today, my dear Christian, first of all, is passion a part of your life? Is there energy in your love for God? And if not, why not? Are you a servant? In what ways have you done this? In what ways might God call you to do it? The world is desperate for something to believe in. And I pray that God would produce in us a kind of reality, the real thing, that would argue for the reality of a risen Savior. So we have some more to come, but here's two. Passion, servanthood. May God form them in our life. Amen? Amen.